0: Time is gonna pass no matter what, either way, right? That time is going to pass, you're going to learn things, whether you push as hard as you can to figure it out right this second or not, it will work out. And so enjoy the time that you have, even if it's uncomfortable where you are and you don't know where you're gonna go and what that next step will be, try and enjoy that process as much as you can. Because having that unlimited potential, that open opportunity is really fun.
1: Welcome to Star of the Doubts, I'm your host, Jared Easley. Our co-host today is Jeff Stevens from CrazyDadLife.com. Hey, Jeff.
2: Hello, Jared, and hey, Jamie. (laughs)
1: We are fortunate today to have Jamie Tardy as our guest. Jamie is the author of the new book, The Eventual Millionaire, How Anyone Can Be an Entrepreneur and Successfully Grow Their Startup. She's also a business coach and speaker who helps entrepreneurs to achieve their goals. She is the founder of eventualmillionaire.com, which is her website that features a new millionaire interview each week that focuses on personal finance and entrepreneurship. She's also one of the prestigious keynote speakers for the podcast movement in Dallas, Texas, this August of 2014. Jamie, congratulations on your new book and welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me, guys. I appreciate it.
1: Are you excited about keynoting at the podcast? Oh, movement?
0: yeah. Woohoo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I'm excited for you. Your presentation skills are pretty awesome, and I can't wait to see your keynote.
0: I can't either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> even better all right so we like to do icebreakers here on the show so Jamie what's the best concert that you have ever been to the
0: best concert oh probably the one I met my husband at right <laughs> so it was actually called rustic overtones no one's probably ever heard of them they were a local main band and I think I was 16 years old when I met him so I'd have to say that that is the best concert I've ever been to
2: <laughs>
1: got a YouTube rustic overtones now they're yeah, really never-
0: good.
2: I've never heard of that one. Okay, let's do a blank versus blank, Jamie. So more gratifying to you, quitting sugar or seeing your book on the shelf of Barnes & Noble on Fifth Avenue in New York. And again, when you take this into consideration, I've seen the picture of your book on that shelf. And it's not like, you know, how we used to go to Blockbuster back in the day and you'd have the videos that you just see the binding of. And then you have those feature videos that are up on the shelf, you could see the whole front cover. That's how your book was. And it was right there next to Chris Gillibo's and Eric Reese's book. I mean, how did that feel? Which which is more gratifying, quitting the sugar or seeing that book on that shelf? Uh,
0: Since I'm a sugaraholic, so just so everybody knows how crazy that is, right? That's huge for me. But the book, I never thought that the book would be that big of a deal. But when my assistant brought me, we both got to meet each other in person for the first time and I was in New York City and we walked in and I was like, like, they're going to have it. And she's like, I called ahead of time. I know they have it. I was like, okay, but it's probably like, you know, somewhere <laughs> way low or, you know what I mean? Hidden right. somewhere. And the guy walked us over and I was like, oh, well, that's really very cool. And so, yeah, that hit me really hard, a lot harder than I ever thought it would. So yes, I would definitely say that.
1: Oh, awesome. good for you. Let's do finish this sentence, Jamie. The first one is my favorite thing about the UFC is.
0: (laughs) I love you guys. (laughs) It was Anderson Silva. Now I can't think of anything besides his leg break. Yeah, I love the experience and I love learning, right? So I think watching it, everybody thinks I'm crazy for watching like guys get bloodied up, but it's not about the bloodied up part. It's about the technique and the skill. It's insane to see what they can do. So I love that piece.
2: Yeah, and the the respect they show each other at the end of the fight is awesome. No matter how much they beat upon each other during the fight, I mean, just getting together afterwards and shaking their hands is awesome.
0: Yeah, or the crazy people like this past one that I just saw Saturday. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, Diego is crazy. (laughs) And so being able to see that is always fun too. And it was in Dallas, and I really wish I was there live. But next time.
2: Next time. Okay, one more finish the sentence. The key to building good relationships is?
0: Caring. I mean, it's so funny. Building relationships to me just comes easy, I guess, because I actually care about people. Hmm, Who knew, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Jamie, let's talk a little bit about something else. One of the things you wrote about in your book is fear. And this show is about overcoming doubt. So I know there was a season of your life when you were in IT and you had to overcome some doubt when you found yourself working in the predominantly male environment. What was that like for you?
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny. I always took it as an asset and not a negative thing. So to me being a female in that industry was really weird and you did have to, you know, prove yourself. But as soon as you proved yourself, like, okay, yeah, I'm as good as you are. Then it was actually, I got better things. So I got the better schedule. I got treated even better actually, which was really interesting. The proving yourself part was difficult, don't get me wrong. Cause you're sort of looked down upon as if you can't do it. So there sort of strikes in some fear of going, oh gosh, what if I'm not? as good as I hope I am. But being able to push past that and just be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, I'm cool, too. Don't worry, I can do this also. And sort of showing your skills. And um, that made it so much better for me. Like I said, I've been doing computers since I was 16 years old. So being able to sort of show that I have that as a skill and that girls totally can was really, really important in order to set myself apart and actually succeed more than I ever thought I could
2: as you became successful with that and you started to succeed and you started to show that you could do what everybody else could do or even do it better, did you start to get negative pushback almost? Did you start to feel that the guys that were there in the room with you started to resent you in any way or did you fight past that as well?
0: Actually, it was most of the girls. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) There was a couple girls, some people would call me princess, right, or something like that, just because I was able to get what I wanted a lot of times. But the funny thing is, is it's just because I would ask, right, I would get the promotions because I'd ask, I'd get the raises because I'd ask. It wasn't that difficult, which is funny, as long as you're proving your value. I remember I had started my job as an engineer, and I used to travel around and stuff like that before I got the promotion as a project manager. And I remember asking for a raise three months after I started. Now, don't get me wrong, this is the most money I had ever made in my entire life. And I was dumbfounded that they were gonna pay me this much money. And yet, three months later, I decided to ask for a raise anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, and I got like a $5 an hour raise. And I was like, whoa, that was way easier than I thought. And so being able to do that stuff, I mean, it was scary, but I was like, what's the worst that's going to happen? They know that I'm sort of pushing forward and I really want to be doing more. And that's, I think, what led to the promotion and stuff like that, too. So I usually uh, sort of go out on a limb going, well, I'm going to give it a try. What's the worst that's going to happen? And then so far, so good, right? Sometimes it doesn't always work, but the times it have definitely outweigh the times it didn't.
2: Awesome. And then somewhere along that journey in your IT career, you kind of came to the realization that it really wasn't what you wanted to do. And I guess your husband was a juggler at that time, I've heard.
0: And oh, yeah. you had
2: a four-month-old baby as well. So with the new baby, your husband's a struggling juggler, or maybe he's a successful juggler, I'm not sure. But you decided to quit your <laughs> IT job, that high-paying job. How did you get through that point in your life where you took that risk and moved away from what was comfortable?
0: Yeah. So, and he's a juggler and contortionist. And now he has a really amazing show called Audio Body. And he wasn't struggling that bad. He'd been doing it for 10 years probably before, but it was a variable income. And Mm -hmm. for me, someone who likes predictability and control, you know, having variable income, not very fun. So the good news is, is that, you know, the year before is when we really started planning for it. It's not as though, you know, I had a baby and I was like, oh shoot, I hate what I'm doing. I knew that a long time before. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so we had planned for a really, really long time. Having that realization that it wasn't what I wanted to do, and yet I had so much in student loans based on that career, that really sucks to look at, <laughs> of going, okay, I spent my entire life going to school. And then I think my uh, total student loans were about $100,000, but I only owed, I think, thirty or forty. Thankfully, my parents helped, and we got a bunch of scholarships. But being able to have that and going, okay, I spent four years of my life learning this, And now I don't think I want to do it. That's not cool. I'd only worked in that industry for two years after I graduated. (laughs) I mean, I was 24 years old. It's not like, you know, I had a long career and at least it was worth it. So having that realization was a bit hard to swallow that maybe I made a bad choice. Now I don't think I made a bad choice at all. I just am using the degree that I have in a little bit different of a way, right? So I'm using it online, which is way better. Not that I think I needed my degree, because I'm pretty sure I didn't, but you know, side, total side note. So one of the things that I wanted to do was make sure I paid off those student loans before I quit. I don't know why, this was just in my brain of going, well, if I'm making good money um, and if I quit, I have no idea what I'm going to do or how much money I'm going to make. Because for me, it was more about the lifestyle after that. It was like, okay, I made good money. That's great. I can check that box off. But if you're not happy, It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter at all. So being able to sort of move forward and go, okay, if I don't do this, I'm going to pay off that loan so I don't feel guilty that I have this huge loan that I can't pay off because I'm an artist or something like that. And I was actually an art major at the very beginning. But it's funny, so quitting and being... Um, having my husband be the sole person making money and me having a four-month-old. I don't recommend that for anyone because I didn't know exactly what to do. I, I knew that I didn't really want to be a stay-at-home mom because I love working. I really, really enjoy working. Um, but I knew that I had to figure out what that was. Looking at that is like looking up a mountain, right, of going, hmm, I know that I want to do something with my life. I want something meaningful. I want something important. I want something that brings some money for the family, but not knowing what it is. It's like that answer's at the top of the mountain and you have no idea how to get there. And so it's funny how many people get stuck at that place. And I mean, I did too. And so do so many people that I talked to and so many people that have read the book have come to me going like, oh, I know how you feel. I feel like I'm in that position right now. I don't know exactly what I want to do. Um, and that's scary, right? That's where the doubts come in. Well, maybe I suck. Maybe things don't, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. If I don't do IT, well, maybe I'm not good at anything. All those other things start coming up in your head and it makes it really challenging. And the only sort of advice I can give for that piece is to just know that it's a process. And I wish I knew this back then. And I sort of knew it logically, but I, you know, never actually took it to heart that time is going to pass no matter what, either way right? That time is going to pass. You're going to learn things, whether you push as hard as you can to figure it out right this second or not, it will work out. And so enjoy the time that you have, even if it's uncomfortable where you are and you don't know where you're going to go and what that next step will be. Try and enjoy that process as much as you can, because having that unlimited potential, that open opportunity is really fun too. And sometimes, especially for planners like me, we don't like that. <laughs> and so, like, to me having that open potential, I didn't enjoy it as much as I could. I was like, well, I have to figure it out because I need to move forward and I feel stuck. And so I have to figure it out right now. When in reality I didn't. And it took a while. It probably took about a year before I even figured out what it was that I wanted to do. So I mean, just to, you know, ease anyone's mind that might be going through the same thing, don't worry, it will all work out.
1: Jamie, you're incredibly driven, but you're also family oriented. So how have you been able to balance your entrepreneurial journey while still finding time for your two kids?
0: That is a very hard challenge. (laughs) So at the very beginning, it made a lot of sense for me. I only worked 20 hours a week and I made it a point to only work 20 hours a week because I was, you know, I was the mom and that's what I did. And so I was, you know, part time, stay at home mom, part time working mom. Now, as the business has grown, thankfully, I have an amazing husband who you know, brings the kids into school every day and picks them up from school every day, and except when he's traveling. But in general, he pulls a lot of the weight. I still probably only work about 30 or 35 hours a week. Um, at least that's what rescue time on my computer says. So that's, how many, that's how many hours of computer time I have a week. But it's still difficult. That sounds not bad, right? Oh, 30, 35 hours. But dealing with everything having to do with work and with kids is difficult. It's a lot of Responsibility—a lot to do. Even just grocery shopping. I mean, you know what I mean. Like it all adds up. Like oh shoot, I have to do this, and our brains get a little crazy. So I love um, using tactics from like David Allen of getting things done and trying to really parse out the time that I have. I try and finish up by four at the very latest. Um, sometimes it goes to 4:30 or five. But being able to do stuff like that and take like this Wednesday, we're taking the whole afternoon off to go to San Antonio because one of the millionaires I interviewed is actually going to be down there. And he's like, oh, why don't we beat up? So I'm taking the whole family down there. We've never been to San Antonio. So doing little things like that to try and make time special with the kids and stuff is what I try to do. I'm never, you know, nobody's 100% at it. (laughs) I'll never admit to be super mom as much as I would like to be. But I try and do those little things to help out.
2: That's awesome. And as part of my website, the crazy dad life, that's what I talk about as well, trying to balance your passion for something you want to do as an entrepreneur, while also having a full time job and being there for your kids. And I guess the question I have is, is based on your experience with the eventual millionaire project and the book and your podcast, et etc. Millionaire parents are kind of portrayed a certain way, either it's right or wrong, but they're kind of portrayed as being disconnected from their kids. You know, you see the stories of these bratty, rich kids acting out and their jet-setting parents are off around the world, not even really engaged in their lives. You've interviewed over 130 millionaires. How have you found their family lives to be? I mean, do you get into those types of details with them and talk about how their family lives are? Are they balancing it correctly or are they all about the money and doing their own thing?
0: Thankfully, most of the people I interview aren't all about the money, which is always a good thing. The people that I interview are all self-made through business, and I think they understand the value of their time. Don't get me wrong, there's a few who definitely think that being the breadwinner and, you know, providing that safety for their family is the most important thing. But then there's so many others that are just so family-centric, right? I interviewed Dan Martell, and on Facebook, I don't know how many pictures of his kids he posts all the time, right? <laughs> so he's constantly with them. He's trying to do both at the same time. Sean Malarkey is the same way. Being able to see these people. And I just interviewed a, a woman named Luba who's out in New York City who has you know a three-year-old and a, a less than one-year-old baby and is doing it too. And I was asking her like questions too, like, how do you manage both? And she's like, I don't even carry my cell phone all- around with me on Saturday and Sunday, right? So each person does their own thing differently, but I have to say the people that I interview specifically, I haven't found any of them having like not so rich kids that don't care about, you know what I mean? Because a a lot of the times the people that I interview, since they're self-made, they really instill in their kids that value of time and money. Right? It takes a long time to make this stuff. And so it's not as though they just inherited it and oh my gosh, um, we just have money and it's something that's normal. A lot of these people went through a lot of struggle. And so I don't, unfortunately or fortunately, the people that I interview aren't like that, thankfully.
2: (laughs) Yeah. The interesting thing is to see... Whether they're like that now that they have the millions, they've kind of reached that top of the mountain of where they have the millions, they have the comfort versus during the daily grind it took to get there, how engaged were they during that journey they had?
0: That's a really good question, especially because when I asked everybody, because one of my goals with interviewing millionaires, what and this is at the very beginning, was to find out if any of them did it working 20 hours a week. Because I went, if I'm working 20 hours a week, let's see if anyone else at all <laughs> had done this to see if it's even possible, right? So I surveyed for the book, I surveyed the millionaires and was like, okay, at the very beginning when you were getting into business, how many hours a week did you work? And the most common answer, right? This wasn't a multiple choice, this was a blank entry. The most common answer was all of them. And I was like, ooh, okay. <laughs> that's a lot. So being able to see that over and over and over again, that's why my whole thing is about being an eventual millionaire. To me, don't get me wrong, I love working. And my husband sort of jokes because he's like, he would work 24 hours a day if we didn't have, if we didn't have a family. He would be there working all the time because I definitely love working. But being able to do both and realize, especially while my kids are young, they're seven and four right now. So especially while they're young, being able to give them the time that I can now... And even if a million dollars or whatever it is takes a lot longer, thankfully, I have the lifestyle that I have now. And so I can't regret that in any way. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Uh, Jamie, you are a self-proclaimed creative and a geek. How have you been able to embrace both of these aspects and channel them for success in your business?
0: You guys are good with these questions. I'm impressed. I've never been asked that before. So I think one of the things that's really interesting is I started out as an art major, right? So I was voted most artistic in high school and I worked for an internet company when I was 16. So to me, it was normal to be able to do both, which is funny because now that I meet people, I'm like, oh, that's apparently not very normal. Apparently it's usually one or the other side of it. So it sort of comes naturally to me to be that analytical mind, but also have um, some of the artistic stuff. I was actually, when I went to college, I started out as a medical illustration major, And then switch to IT, so uh, a little bit different. But there's definitely a great book um, that I can recommend that I think would help in general. It's called Think Like Leonardo da Vinci by Michael Gelb. It's a really interesting book because they talk about how people sort of say left brain and right brain. Well, there's, of course, no such thing as, you know, cutting your brain in half and having a left brain or a right brain. But just in general, that act of being able to do both the creativity and the analytical stuff, um, that gives you really great techniques, um, even vision boarding and a whole bunch of other stuff having to do with um, using both sides. Because I think it's really important. And my husband's like this, too. He's very creative and very analytical at the same time. And being able to have those both, I think, is amazing. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was born that way <laughs> or if it's something that I was able to cultivate, but being able to have both, I think, is a huge asset.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's, it's a tremendous asset to have both those traits. But sometimes it's hard, too, because sometimes your mind starts to drift at all the amazing things you can think of while you're still trying to be very analytical and deep down into the data. It can be a challenge.
0: Yeah, I agree a thousand percent, definitely.
2: Right. So in your book, you also present the millionaires as, as normal people, people just like anybody else walking around the street, which, which they are in, in all theory. But what tips can you provide the listeners to how they can interact with these folks or anyone at a higher level? I know you talk about leveling up and increasing the value of your friends, you know, leveling up to a better influence of people around you. But how can you do that respectfully to these influential people?
0: I think one of the biggest tips I can give is to know that you're on their level. It's not like you guys are on two separate levels. Oh my gosh, they're a millionaire. How can I be like them? And I say this, especially like when you're a speaker and stuff, I can relate a little bit easier. When you're a speaker, everybody assumes you're sort of more important or whatever it is, right? So there'll be people that come up after a speech and go, oh my God, I love you so much. You're so amazing. Thank you so much. And act like a fan, right? Which is fine. Don't get me wrong. I think it's awesome and amazing. But the hard thing is, is it's almost as if they're um, setting themselves on a lower level of going, oh my gosh, you're so great. And intrinsically saying, you know, I'm not like that and, or anything like that. When I have somebody else come up after the show and be like, what you did was, was great and then start relating it to some of the things that they do or um, really try and build those connections. That's where true relationships, I think, start to form. And so at the very beginning, and, and this was me, I was one of those fan fangirls, so I could, I'm allowed to say that. At the beginning when I started interviewing millionaires, I put them on a pedestal. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm talking to a millionaire. This is like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and, and, I mean, I'm this girl from Maine, right, that you know doesn't actually get to talk to millionaires in any other aspect of her life. So being able to see that. And then as soon as I almost had this switch of going – They are just a normal person and I can talk to them as if I'm going to talk to anyone and I try and build connections the best I can, these threads of connection the best I can and then as we build those up, it's the same thing as dealing with anyone else. It's just crazy how our brains will set them up on like a pedestal or a different level. If you can make sure that you guys are on the same level, even if in business maybe they're better than you or in something else they're better than you, that's fine. Everybody has their strengths in different things. Um, What you might be really good at uh, in physical fitness or whatever, the millionaire might not be or you know what I mean? The millionaire might be amazing in business, but not in other areas of your life. So don't like, I personally try not to put anybody on a pedestal as best I can, as best I can, right? I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk and like <laughs> Ray Kurzweil. So if I met them, I probably would put them on a pedestal. But in general, I definitely try to keep people at the same level because they are, they're just people. And if you can do that, that's going to help you build an actual relationship with them instead of sort of assuming that they're better than you. Does that make sense? Yep.
1: Jamie, you were raised in a middle-class family and background. What sort of leadership did your parents provide when you were younger? Were they engaged, fostering your artistic spirit and encouraging you to pursue what made you happy, or were they more focused on you finding the traditional job?
0: That's really funny you ask. My mom came down this week to watch the kids while we were here because it was school vacation. And we were sort of reminiscing because my mom read the book and she was like, she's never even like listened to any of the interviews that I've done or anything like this. But she read the book and now she's like posting about it on Facebook, talking to all our friends. Like, it's really funny how different this happens. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting is, and I think I have this about in the book, my dad was a musician, right? So he was a professional guitar player. And so to him, you didn't have to take the traditional route. He told me that I didn't have to go to college. And I remember specifically saying, No, dad, you don't understand. I have to go to college. (laughs) Like I, for some reason, had this set up in my brain. Like I had to go to college in order to get a good job. Even though my dad had always told me, you know, work for yourself. Because he didn't afterwards. He now makes artificial limbs, which is always interesting, right? And so, but he always told me that I should work for myself. Though he didn't for a lot of it. So it's sort of an interesting piece, sort of him telling me what I should do versus seeing him actually do a lot of it. Um, He did sort of side hustles and, you know, fixed guitars on the side. But I saw him working a lot, trying to do that and his day job. And my mom, you know, worked for AT&T for like 20 years or something like that. So I saw them doing that stuff and just sort of struggling to get by. And I didn't want to struggle. So I just assumed I had to, you know, try and shoot for the highest part of the corporate ladder there was. And it didn't even hit me that I could do something on my own until later, which is funny because my husband had always done something on his own. But I don't think I had that confidence in myself that I could do it until I started being successful in the corporate world. And then as soon as I started being successful, I was like, oh, maybe I can do something on my own. I had a little bit more faith in in my abilities, I think, um, to be able to start pushing through on that. But looking at my parents, um, they were always super supportive of anything I wanted to do. I was one of those crazy kids who was like, I'm really interested in rock climbing this week. And my dad would help me build like these rock handhelds and put them on the side of the house. Right? Or I was like, oh, I really want to paint this week. And they would be really great about you know, helping me get paint or you know, buying books or whatever they could scrounge by <laughs> to really give us what we needed. So they were extremely supportive in every way, thankfully. Right, I know a lot of people had really tough ways of growing up. And I am so thankful that I didn't have to go through that.
2: So with that, are you also finding yourself passing those same messages down to your kids? I mean, this is something I'm struggling with as well, trying to balance working in the corporate world. And yet I feel like I need to tell my daughters to go to college, get that job, you know, versus exploring your creativity and your passions. But I'm starting to come around more to telling them to go ahead and explore those passions. It's a struggle. So how have you been passing the message along to your kids?
0: That's a great question. So interviewing all these millionaires, I now have data to back up some of the stuff that I felt, right? So like asking them if they went to college, a lot of them went to college, probably about 50% uh, or a little more than 50% went to college. But most of them aren't even using the degree that they have now. And even Google nowadays isn't even looking for degrees, which is kind of crazy. So what we're trying to do, and my husband never went to college, and he's doing amazing, crazy things with like Disney and a whole bunch of stuff right now. So to me, it really is about doing the stuff that's intangible that school does not teach them. We're actually talking about homeschooling a lot because my son came home so sad that he couldn't write. He felt like he wasn't as good as a writer of everyone else. He is the most ridiculously creative kid you've probably ever seen. Now, my husband, you know, makes weird, crazy things out of Legos and bungee cords. So he's got a really good (laughs) influence. But like, it's insane to see what he can do and that we don't measure in school at all. And we really should, right? We should be cultivating that stuff. And so what we're trying to do is really let him know that, yes, he's going to learn, like he's reading like crazy. So, but at first I was like, oh my gosh, he's not reading very much. And should I care about that? And I started not caring at all. Right, and then of course, you know, months later, he's like reading full chapter books without a problem. So, I mean, a lot of it, I think, is us and the way that we assume school has to be. I was one of those straight A students where if I got a B, I was upset. And so, I'm trying to be like, no, you know what? These are just school grades. Yes, you're going to learn basic math. You're gonna, you're going to learn, you know, how to spell. Or we have spell checks. so you don't even have to do that anywhere. A lot of the stuff is the stuff you're gonna learn anyway throughout school. So the stuff that we really need to be paying attention to is that creativity, is that getting past the stuff that's hard. So when I was younger, everything came easy to me, right? So the straight A student, like I definitely worked hard, but in general, it wasn't that difficult. And you get to the real world, And you're like, oh, shoot, I have to get really uncomfortable or really scared or, you know, whatever those things are. And it's really foreign, or at least it was to me. The only time I got that scared was when I had to do public speaking in school. But what I want to be able to do is have my kids start dealing with that stuff now. Can you imagine – Like the whole article, the whole chapter I have on fear in the book, I find really interesting. I love asking people about their fear and how they get past it because it helps me too, right? But it also helps my kids. I think that is one of the hugest skill sets there is that we aren't teaching our kids, right? We're telling them to be careful. We're telling them they're all winners. We're telling them, you know, all this stuff, but we're not telling them the stuff of going, yeah, some of the stuff you have to do is going to be hard and scary, Right, and the benefit on the other side is going to be huge and enormous, right? Seeing kids get up on uh, talent show stages, you know, being super scared is amazing. We should be like really rewarding that type of stuff. Getting yeah, out awesome. doing stuff that's huge. I think that's really important.
1: Jamie, we're proud to have had the opportunity to talk to you for a few minutes. What's the best place for the listeners to pick up their copy of your new book, The Eventual Millionaire? And stay connected with everything that you're doing online.
0: So if you go to the TheEventualMillionaire.com, you can actually go ahead and download the starter kit, which is all the worksheets in the book. So when we're talking about fear, there's actually worksheets on how to move past your fear with actually tactical items on it i really care about actually actions right i love inspiration too i think that's awesome but being able to back it up with actually doing something and making a change i think is really important so if you go to the eventual of course there's links to the book but you can also download the starter kit for free
1: awesome jamie do you have any final thoughts for the listeners
0: yeah it's so funny i love the name of your podcast star of the doubts right? Because it's all about that. It's not feeding the doubts that you really have in your brain. Everybody has them. Millionaires have them too. Don't think that you know they're elitist or something special. Every single person that I've ever talked to has them. And so being able to recognize that what they are, um, and it's just our silly brains telling us some silly things that may or may not be true, <laughs> and then getting past that anyway. I'm so glad you guys are doing this so that way people can hear it.
1: Awesome. I want to say a quick thank you to Jeff for being the co-host and again congratulations to you Jamie. Best wishes to you and your family and your business.
0: Thank you so much and everybody come check out the Podcast Movement. Jared will be there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Jamie's keynoting.
0: It's not like you guys are on two separate levels, oh my gosh, they're a millionaire how can I be like them? And I say this, especially like when you're a speaker and stuff, I can relate a little bit easier. When you're a speaker, everybody assumes you're sort of more important or whatever it is, right? So there'll be people that come up after a speech and go, Oh my God, I love you so much. You're so amazing. Thank you so much. And act like a fan, right? Which is fine. Don't get me wrong. I think it's awesome and amazing. But the hard thing is, is it's almost as if they're um, setting themselves on a lower level of going, Oh my gosh, you're so great. And intrinsically saying, You know, I'm not like that and, or anything like that. When I have somebody else come up after the show and be like, what you did was, was great and then start relating it to some of the things that they do or um, really try and build those connections, that's where true relationships, I think, start to form.